0: Welcome to the 330th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I talk with Alma Stewart, founder and president of the Louisiana Center for Health Equity. And I'm joined by guest co-host Kim Fortune, Kim is a great friend of COVID Calls, and she served recently as a guest host of COVID Calls in July, which you, probably saw, which you probably saw. She's a professor in the University of California, Irvine's Department of Anthropology, and she's the author of Advocacy After Bhopal, Environmentalism, Disaster, New World Orders. And she also helps lead the Asthma Files, a collaborative project to understand the cultural dimensions of environmental health. She's also the organizer of the Disaster STS Network and the past president of the Society for Social Studies of Science, and we'll bring her out with Alma Stewart in just a moment. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID calls live on weekdays at 6 p.m. Eastern time. Just go to the COVID calls YouTube channel to watch. You can hear COVID calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests, and future topics, and please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, August 31st, 2021, there are 4,512,823 deaths from COVID-19 globally. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. Rather than continuing to read so many of the COVID death numbers country by country, which strike me now as probably inaccurate and not a good way to visualize the suffering of the disaster, I'd like to continue raising different COVID measures that I'd like to know about in addition to the death totals. For example, how many people around the world have received intensive care treatment, ICU treatment in the pandemic in improvised spaces, hospital hallways, medical tents, even parking lots, which I've seen in a recent story, for example. Knowing this might help us visualize the enormous stress that COVID is putting on the healthcare system in America and around the world. I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is COVID and Ida are a brutal one-two punch for hospitals in the storm's path. This was published in Mother Jones and was written by Madison Pauly, published the 29th of August, 2021. As powerful Hurricane Ida bore down on Louisiana on Sunday, bringing on 150 mile per hour winds, a large storm surge and the threat the threat of up to two feet of rain, hospitals across the state were filled to the brink with COVID patients, including hundreds that require ventilators and intensive care. We don't have any place to bring those patients, not in-state, not out-of-state, Governor John Bell Edwards told the Associated Press. Like its neighboring Gulf states, Louisiana is in the midst of a severe fourth wave of COVID infections, reaching as many as 7,500 new cases each day in mid-August. That's according to the CDC. The extra transmissible Delta variant and Louisiana's low vaccination rate, have slammed hospitals with thousands of patients, more than in previous waves, prompting medical facilities to stop accepting patient transfers, and John Bell Edwards to warn of, quote, a major failure of our healthcare delivery system, unquote, according to Business Insider. The pace of new cases has slowed in the last two weeks, giving the state some leeway as the storm bears down. But as of Sunday, Louisiana was reporting that nearly 500 COVID patients remained on ventilators, and 84% of ICU beds were full. The evacuation of our hospitals is not an option, Bell Edwards said at a press conference on Friday before the storm arrived. Some patients with acute needs have been transferred from more rural hospitals to larger ones, but on the whole, patients and medical systems will simply have to weather the storm. Emergency rooms stayed open, but many clinics and urgent care centers closed. Ashner Health, the largest hospital system in the state, considered evacuating coastal hospitals but was unable to do so due to crowding at its other facilities, according to the Associated Press. Administrators said they were prepared with backup generator power and days of extra medical supplies and food. According to New Orleans public radio station WWNO, in the lead-up to the storm, hospitals across the state were discharging patients as quickly as possible and reducing staff. Emergency rooms stayed open at that time, had planned to stay open, but many clinics and urgent care centers have closed. Hospitals in nearby Gulf states, also affected by IDA, aren't in much better shape. Both Mississippi and Alabama are at record high ICU usage, according to the Montgomery Advertiser. We've got a hurricane season coming. We've got a pandemic, said Mike Evans, director of the Mobile County Emergency Management Agency in coastal Alabama. How many more things can you pile on top of, folks? Like Hurricane Katrina, which struck Louisiana's coast 16 years ago to the day, this was published on the 29th, Ida is likely to have the greatest impact on low-income communities of color. A few weeks after after that devastating storm, then-Governor Kathleen Blanco announced that Charity Hospital, a New Orleans public institution since the mid-1700s, would be closed permanently. Before Katrina, it was a lifeline for the city's uninsured, Gary Rivlin, a Mother Jones contributor and author of Katrina After the Flood, wrote last year in the Appeal, Working with the military just after the storm, hospital staff scrubbed clean the first three floors of the 20-story hospital and prepared to reopen it. Yet medical staff was thwarted, not by mold, but by the state agency overseeing charity, which several times chased out the doctors, nurses, and other personnel, and ultimately padlocked the building. The state, which was responsible for picking up Charity's budget, had long wanted the hospital closed, as did others who saw in Katrina an opportunity to chase out the poor. Okay, I'd like to turn to the conversation for today, and I'd like to introduce my guests, Alma Stewart. Alma C. Stewart is the founder and president of the Louisiana Center for Health Equity. Throughout her career, Alma has testified during countless legislative hearings, spearheaded numerous advocacy campaigns, and addressed social and political determinants of health in a manner that boldly places the needs of disparate populations at the forefront of Louisiana's political and social agenda. Alma's tireless civic engagement and uncanny ability to engage community stakeholders at the grassroots level have earned recognition on national, state, and local stages. One of her most noteworthy accomplishments was organizing and leading the campaign for health care for everyone, Louisiana, to advocate for Medicaid expansion, closing the coverage gap for over 500,000 adults. And in addition to Alma Stewart, I'm so lucky today to also have Kim Fortune joining us as well. Alma Stewart and Kim Fortune, thank you so much for joining me on COVID Calls today.
1: Certainly. Thank you for having us today.
0: Alma, I'd like to start the way I usually do on COVID calls, which is just to find out where you're calling in from and what the pandemic situation looks like there. And I guess we really have to also talk about Hurricane Ida as well. So give us a situation report for where you are.
1: Yes. um, Again, my name is Alma Stewart. As you said, I'm president and founder of the Louisiana Center for Health Equity. We are a statewide nonprofit organization that's based here in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, although we serve the entire state of Louisiana. Uh, My organization is um, now 11 years old. I am the president and founder of the organization, uh, which I am very proud of. Uh, We are not in a good place, obviously, right now having the combined um, disasters of, of the pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic, which had already stretched very thin um, the current health delivery system here in the state. And now um, the Ida, Hurricane Ida, that um, passed through the state, and as you um, are well aware of, has left tremendous devastation, um, probably to the nature of um, what we have not seen since Katrina, especially in the New Orleans and South Louisiana areas.
0: I know the power um, outage seems to be a, one of the main things that the media is reporting about right now. Do you have any sense of the scale of that?
1: The last I saw on the news, and that was um, late last night, um, there were still about eight hundred thousand uh, residents. It, depending upon what what numbers you look at, what station you look at, it could be. Over a million still without power. The lowest I saw was over eight hundred thousand people across the state who are still in the dark.
0: I know you know after Katrina, it was the loss of power at hospitals and medical centers that caused so much suffering. I assume at this point, I mean the law changed after that, and, and I'm assuming backup power is now pretty standard in medical centers in Louisiana. Have you seen any anything about that?
1: What we have seen is um, that. Um, by and large, we um, fared better this this go around than we did uh, in uh, 2005 with Hurricane Katrina, which actually Ida came on the anniversary, 16th anniversary of Hurricane Katrina. Uh, we saw some um, some things that worked better. We also saw some failures, such as uh, I saw on the news that um, some of the uh, electric towers, the towers that power electricity actually toppled, which is part of the reason why so many people are without power. And I am hearing that it may be up to four weeks before some people's power is restored because those power towers have to be. Restored, rebuilt. And so, um, we also saw something that I don't recall seeing in hurricane during Hurricane Katrina, which was telephone or communications failing. The 911 system failed in some areas. So we, we saw some, some differences, some things better and some new things in these kinds of disasters. It's very unpredictable as to what, what is going to be impacted, what will be affected.
0: I I wonder, you know, going beyond hospitals in terms of maybe long-term care facilities, nursing homes, elder care facilities, veterans' homes, things like that, do they have similar requirements for redundancy in in power, or do they lose power in a situation like this? Do you know?
1: Well, in this instance... The power um, is a problem, but also the water, the flooding in some areas of the state, regardless of whether you would have had power or not, if you're underwater, you still have to evacuate. You've got to get out. And so in the southern parts of the state, along the coastal areas, especially along those coastal areas, there is still significant flooding. There are towns and cities that are still under, basically underwater, even as as far up as Jefferson Parish, which is uh, above New Orleans. Um, coming north of New Orleans. So we have a lot, we have not only the um, wind damage and the power outages, but we also have significant and massive flooding. And so the state was, many areas of the state were were under evacuation orders and had to evacuate to higher ground or, uh, or, or the northern parts of the state or go east or west, in this case, mostly west because the storm was headed east. So um, Louisiana got, um, hit up, beat up pretty bad this go around.
0: I'm trying to picture what that looks like for people who have special health needs, who you don't want to have congregating. Well, not anybody shouldn't be congregating these days because of COVID um, in a relief center, but for special populations that have health needs, like what we were just talking about. Um, yeah. Have you been able to keep a, an eye on that as well?
1: Well, Scott, over the last few days, actually, not not, not very closely because I myself was out of power as well and hunkering down and trying to to stay safe um, and prepare for the storm. I do know that with the areas that evacuated um, prisons, there are some prisons and jails that that were evacuated. There were nursing homes and facilities, uh, you know, um, long-term care facilities that had to evacuate. Um, I do know that there were some hospitals, at least one hospital, if not more, that took a direct hit from the wind damage. Um, I know that one of the Oshner facilities hospitals was was impacted directly, Uh, however they were, according to what I read, uh, they were not able to evacuate because there was nowhere to send those patients. Uh, Unfortunately, with the combination of a um, COVID-19 pandemic and the crisis that Louisiana was already experiencing due to the the most recent surge in COVID-19 cases with the new variant of the um, virus, our hospitals were already overwhelmed, pretty overwhelmed. Um, There was already much in the media, much being reported about the lack of capacity to admit patients, uh, whether they had COVID-19 or other medical conditions. Uh, Elective surgeries and procedures had already been postponed uh, in the wake of the COVID-19 crisis. So we were already stretched to the limit as it relates to the hospitals across the state. The smaller hospitals were already um, reporting that they had nowhere to refer patients that they could not admit because the larger hospitals were not, were no longer accepting um, patients from the smaller areas or the smaller hospitals. And with the, um, of course, with this hurricane and the, um, obviously the impact of the hurricane, um, we've, we've seen the problem exacerbated. And so we expect to continue to see that because I, the um, already, um, you know, the increase that we already had in the pandemic in the number of COVID cases will only be worsened by this storm. There, I mean, we we know the facts, we know the science, right? And so we know evacuating um, thousands and thousands of people, housing thousands and thousands of people in shelters. Um, it is going to increase the spread. We have already seen that with the schools reopening, also that has been an issue here in the state, and we've seen the increase in the spread among um, among children, and so you know um, across the board, pediatric um, hospitals and you know care, uh, acute care facilities, as well as the regular hospitals. Um, have been, you know, have been over, over, overwhelmed with admissions of COVID patients, and now we have this, um, this situation, which is going to increase the spread. And so, it, it's a, it's not a, it's not a, a good picture here. It's not a pretty picture at all.
0: Uh, just a note for viewers, we had planned to talk with Alma Stewart uh, a month ago, and, and the scheduling didn't work out, and so it was not our plan initially to talk to you at this time, but it's an extra privilege to have this vantage point of yours um, with COVID in combination with the storm. Uh, I want to talk with, with you about your organization and its history. I have one more just question here as we're getting started, which actually has to do with, it's a big state, you can't be everywhere all the time, although it seems like you, your reach of your organization kind of does have that um, that sense of what's going on on the, on the ground. But how do you get this kind of information? How do you keep tabs of these, I mean, really complicated picture, even what you were just describing, many different kind of care facilities, many different kinds of health needs, already stressed because of the pandemic, and now you put the hurricane on top. How do you keep tabs of all that?
1: Well let me just back up and say, first of all, I am a registered nurse. I'm a healthcare professional myself. I um, am also a retire- retiree from the Louisiana Department of Health, where I worked for 27 years. So I know the landscape across the state pretty well. Um, in my previous work, working for the health department um, in a very, well high-level um, executive position, my job was a statewide job. Um, we ran my, my, our, my office was the largest um, state agency within state government, actually, at the time. Um, and so uh, at that time, um, prior to my last position, and most of the time that I was in state service, I worked for the agency within the health department, which was the Office for Citizens with Developmental Disabilities. So, when you talk about, you know, um, vulnerable populations or marginalized populations, people with disabilities, I'm very much familiar with that. That's what I did before I started in my um, health disparities work. <laughs> and part of what kind of led me in, into this some, somewhat. Um, so, having a, a pretty good grasp on the um, state and the resources across the state, both within government and outside of government, gives me, I guess, a vantage point that is somewhat unique um, around, on these issues and having, you know, obviously had some responsibilities for managing some of these kinds of issues when I worked in that capacity. Now, granted, that was some time ago and a lot has changed over the years since I left state government. but. On the other hand, some a lot has not changed, <laughs> unfortunately, in some ways.
0: Just a quick reminder that you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking today with Alma Stewart, and I'm joined by a guest co-host, Kim Fortune. Alma, one more question I've been asking guests recently is just about this time period of the pandemic. I wonder if you'd be willing to share a strong memory of this time, something that really sticks with you.
1: I think what sticks with me most, um, Scott, is um the impact of COVID nineteen on our children, on children and youth. Um my organization does a um a good bit of work uh with that population and one of the reasons for that is because that's that's kind of my passion. I, I love working with young people. It's at the end of the day it's where I get my greatest joy and, and satisfaction out of this work. Uh, because the um the the um rewards are, are more immediate. You can see the impact more readily. You can also see the negative impacts more readily as well. And so um, through our work with youth um, in Louisiana, what we have seen over this pandemic is that our, our youth are not faring very well. Um, their emotional well-being has taken a huge hit. Um, the last year of um several months of stay at home um, and distance learning or or whatever the schools are calling it, virtual learning, (laughs) uh, has taken its toll on on youth uh, because of course they are social, social emotional learning as a part of their education. Being isolated and sometimes being in an environment where um, it's not always the best or healthiest environment is is, uh, having an impact on many students. The literature tells us that the depression and anxiety has increased, that suicidal ideolations and in fact suicide in and of itself has increased. And that was even happening prior to COVID-19. And so we know that COVID-19 has exacerbated it. We were on the upside of um, COVID uh, in terms of coming out of COVID, uh, or we thought we were. Um, and now we are. Um, I I would say um, the situation is at least as um, serious as it was at the at the height of the COVID um, pandemic last year. And so school just started. Um, there's still a lot of uncertainty about what will happen this school year, whether schools will stay open, what the policies will be. Some um, Local school systems are somewhat taking matters into their own hands and are requiring um, testing. Um, there has been a lot of controversy about um, mandating the wearing of masks in school. I mean, we, we just have a lot that's going on that's um, affecting our young people and creating an environment where it's very difficult for them to learn. And so we know that um, during last year, Um, the schools, because of COVID, did not test. They did not do the the regular school testing. This year, they did do the testing, and um, we have seen that test scores fell from the year prior. So that's tangible evidence that um, academically, um, our students are falling further behind. And so there's, there's a great deal of concern about the, the young people and about what um, how Louisiana is responding to um, these kinds of issues, uh, whether our, our, the students are actually receiving um, the appropriate um, appropriate interventions when they do present with uh, emotional, Um, Problems or issues, or what in the school system they would call behavioral problems, Louisiana has among the most punitive and regressive school discipline policy in the country, and among the highest school suspensions suspension rate in the country. That was also prior to COVID nineteen. We we know that these things are going to be impacted because students are they have been traumatized. So. Um, I believe that for me, the, those images of the, the young people that I see who are truly struggling, um, really, um, and I, and I, I too, I, I'm a grandmother, so I have children, I have grandchildren in the school system. So I have a personal perspective on this as well with um, hearing the stories from my own grandchildren who have had a very, very difficult time over this last couple of years, since 2020, uh, with the pandemic.
2: Alma, I'd like to zoom out and ask you more about Louisiana in particular, and the example of the particularly punitive school is a great example. You know there's growing recognition that health is powerfully shaped by place and social context Tell us a little about what makes health equity and health 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 well-being such a challenge in Louisiana what are some some other of these kind of particular drivers that um, um, that that you're focused on uh- the
1: two that stand out for me that we particularly focus on are issues around poverty um, and low, low socioeconomic status. Louisiana is a poor state. Um, we have among the hot. We're unfortunately <laughs> we're one of the poorest states uh, in the country as well. Uh, high rates of children in poverty. And so that, of course, is a huge issue because that gets to the issue of resources, right? The fewer resources you have, or access to the resources you need, um, the less likely you're going to be at your at your potential for health. And so that's a huge issue. And and uh, you know we could spend a whole hour talking about that. But the other the other issue for Louisiana that we are um, really of paying attention to and focused on and as and incorporated or embedded in our work is around the systemic and institutional racism. Louisiana also has a very high minority population. About a third of the state actually is minorities. And of course, blacks or African-Americans are the largest demographic in terms of minority um, population. And so when we see you know the combination of those two and some would say one causes the other or the other causes the other hmm, we don't know <laughs> but certainly um you know systemic oppression um we know does impact um you know people's uh people economically there is an economic impact to systemic and institutional racism and so We know that we have to, as we begin to really take a hard, honest look at what um, kind of policy, what kind of systemic transformation and reforms need to take place in this state, those conversations have to be at the forefront.
2: Um, Yeah, I think that your organization has done exemplary work really kind of working at root causes. So can we zoom back further and you tell us the story of the founding of the organization and what prompted your sense that there was a need that you actually had a role to play in the transformation you refer to
1: i i actually when i left the health department i i actually started a consulting business and i was working as a consultant and um, one of my clients was actually the health department and I uh, did a, a report for them, a study they asked me to do, to look at community engagement and chronic diseases through the um, perspective of health disparities. And in doing that work, um, I learned a lot. Uh, one of the things I learned was that um, to a great extent, um, No one was really focusing on this issue systematically, Um, and I say this issue, health disparities. I also learned that um, there was actually very little being done to address health disparities. Um, I saw that um, no one was focusing on the determinants of health. Even where we were focusing on health disparities, it was very much disease-specific, for example, diabetes or cancer, no one was looking at the root causes of the, the, the um, disparities themselves. And we know that, um, you know, health is more than just behavior, individual behavior and healthy lifestyles, which is traditionally what public health, the, the, the way that public health has framed. And to some extent still today, um, the, the public health systems have not fully caught up with what we know now, which is that, uh, you know, lifestyle and behave- health behaviors are only a part of what results in health and health outcomes. So we have to look at the whole picture of the system, the healthcare system. We have to look at um, the um, determinants of health. And we more recently learned that not only the social determinants of health, which is what I was focusing on at the time when I did that report, but also more recently we've learned more about the political determinants of health, which are even more—if um, <laughs> if we can accept and acknowledge and believe it—it's it's a bigger driver of health outcomes and health even than the social determinants of health, because those social determinants of health largely are determined by those political determinants of health. And so um, part of my work now, as we've evolved as an organization and as the field of public health itself that's evolved, I mean, we continue to learn, we continue to evolve in this field in understanding what healthy um, communities look like. Uh, what healthy states look like, what health itself looks like. And so I, I am um, more now focusing on, and we always have focused on policy advocacy, but now we're focusing um, to to a great, greater extent on the uh, political drivers and trying to understand those political drivers. And I'll give you a concrete example. Currently, we are fighting to establish a Louisiana Office on Women's Health. And I, I don't think I need to go into all of the discussion and rationale for why we need that office on women's health. Number one, we're the largest demographic in the state and we're also the least healthy in the nation. So we are fighting to create that office so that there can be a concerted, um, you know, and uh, focus and dedicated resources to address the issues around women's health. Louisiana has um, very, very, uh, you know, Dismal outcomes when it comes to birth outcomes, especially maternal mortality, uh, and the disparities—they are pervasive. With uh, the last data I heard from the health department, with, was uh, five to one for Black women dying in childbirth to our counterparts of white women. Um, you know, I've, we've been talking about this issue since I was a public health nurse years ago in my early career in in this state. We've been talking about the um, high rates of infant mortality, maternal mortality, and according to some data, at least for maternal mortality and the disparities, it's gotten worse. And so that suggests that we 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 need to do something different, and we need to have resources that are really dedicated to tackling these issues. The science is there. We 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 have. Evidence, we know what is causing the disparities, but it's not being addressed systemically within the healthcare delivery system. And so (laughs) we had uh, legislation. The policy passed through the first chamber, the House chamber, unanimously, uh, passed through the House Health and Welfare Committee, House Appropriations Committee, passed the House floor unanimously. Every legislator that got a chance to vote said yes. It the, A companion bill passed in the Senate Health and Welfare Committee unanimously. However, when that legislation reached the Senate Finance Committee, the chair refused to schedule it for a hearing, thus killing the bill. Now, those are the kind of politics that go directly counter to good policy. And it raises a lot of questions as to power, political power, and how that power is used and whether it's used for the political greater political good. We have been asking for answers as to why our bill was refused to be heard. We believe pretty we're pretty confident that had it gotten a hearing in the Senate Finance Committee, the bill would have passed this year. And so we're still trying to meet with the chair, uh, Senator Bodie White of the Senate Finance Committee to find out why he refused to schedule our bill for a hearing. Um, And you know, there's a lot of speculation about it. I don't know. And I, I really do feel that the public should have an answer that we deserve an answer and that he needs to respond to us and to the public about his decision so that that's the kind of politics though that keep us where we are that prevent this state from um making good policy good public policy good public health policy when decisions are made um, in that way, and I won't use adjectives, I'll just state the facts. When, When we make public policy in such a fashion without any accountability or explanation, there's something seriously wrong with the political determinants of how we govern in this state. And so that's just a real clear example of what I'm talking about as to And that's just one example. I'm sure if you were talking to someone else, you know, they could give you many other examples and I could probably give you a few others, too, about some of the um, nuances. And maybe it's not even nuances, but it's idiosyncrasies about, you know, how policy, how public policy is um, determined in a state such as Louisiana. And so I believe as a citizen of this state and as a woman of this state and someone who has invested my life's career in this, in this state, that these are the kinds of things that can no longer be tolerated. That we have to start asking the tough questions and we have to start holding those in positions of power and our policymakers to a standard of integrity to uphold the oath that they took, number one, and to be accountable for their actions.
2: That's adding the political determinants of health to what the social determinants of health framework has shown us is really powerful. And I agree that it would transform public health further towards uh, addressing issues of disparities. And again, and learning too, as you pointed out, that political determinants of health are not always um, proactive. They're also obstructionist. And that sometimes can be even more difficult to identify and name. Yes. Now, working to address that, especially the things not happening instead of things happening, is going to take really creative and extensive political organizing because it's a political problem, not just a health problem. Health is acknowledged to have a lot of dimensionality. So who do you collaborate with organizationally? What kind of organizational networks do you hope to build over time to address the multidimensionality of health, including its political determinants?
1: Yes, that's a great question. And thank you for asking. Um, we work collaboratively with the policymakers, with the executive branch and with the legislative branch, as well as with other, um, healthcare stakeholders, both public and private and the community at large. So I always say our tent is a large tent and we, um, we invite, um, everyone that is interested in our mission and our missions work to work, to join alongside of us and to work collaboratively in partnership with us on these tough issues. Uh, One of our key initiatives right now is the um, LA 40 by 2030 agenda, which is our bold vision to improve Louisiana's health outcomes and the quality of life with Louisiana children and families over this decade. We declared this bold vision in 2020 during our health summit, which we do in collaboration with the health department and, and um, Pgent Biomedical Research Center and, and, and many other partners as well. Um, we declared that bold vision and we were using 2019 data as our baseline year. Well, we know when 2020 data came out, um, after the uh, COVID-19 pandemic, uh, we fell from 49 to 50th in our national ranking. And just recently, America's Health Rankings um, published a 2021, just a little over a month ago, uh, a um, health disparities report that really shows Louisiana um, really struggling. Um, uh, amid and and during this post this um, COVID nineteen pandemic, and so I say all that to say that we've fallen even further behind where we were when when we declared that bold vision, and so um, our goal of in improving our health outcomes is even more talents because we've got ground to make up <laughs> um, now, and so. The pandemic, the COVID nineteen pandemic, has been a real, um, vivid illustration of the ills that we have within our state, um, especially as it relates to the healthcare delivery system. And I don't say this to cast any um, blame or, you know, negative negativity towards any entity or anyone um it just is what it is we have a healthcare delivery system that is not working it is not working and i i feel that i am in a very good position to um, to have drawn that conclusion because after 3 years of fighting to get healthcare coverage health insurance coverage for the um, people of this state, who the adults who were caught in the coverage gap, five years later, we are 50. Our health outcomes have not improved. We did not, as most other states that uh, implemented the Medicaid expansion and improved the health insurance coverage for their their citizens, their health outcomes improved. We did not see that in Louisiana. We have not seen that five years later. And so, you know, the argument about the um, resources, the um, funding, the financial investment in healthcare delivery in this state, um, we have resources. We have far more resources than we had prior to Medicaid expansion billions of dollars were infused in this state and i can not see the return on our investment and for me that's that that's that's unsettling it's disturbing very disturbing i won't go into trying to explain why that's the case But what we know is that the system, the current system, which is primarily by and large, a privatized system, has not yielded the results that were anticipated. Um, My organization was commissioned to do a study by the legislature um, and it was reauthorized just this, this past legislative session that ended in June Um, SCR32, to look at the impact of the closure of the charity hospital um, here, the the regional center, medical center here. And I I heard you, Scott mentioned the charity hospital in New Orleans. Uh, As you know, Louisiana historically had a, because we are a very poor state, we had a charity care system. We had multiple charity hospitals throughout the state those those were not just hospitals, they were regional medical centers that served primarily uninsured populations. Uh, but in some areas they were the only hospital, so they served everybody. Um, and so um, the closure of the hospital here in the Baton Rouge region, which is a serves a seven parish area, um, in your area that would be counties, um, when that Regional Medical Center was privatized. The hospital physically was closed and the services from that medical center, some of those services, um, were, um, taken over, taken on by the, one of the local, um, medical centers, private medical centers, which is, which is a, um, charitable, a, a nonprofit faith-based institution, um, have high respect for. However, the services, the what, what transpired in that shift in that privatization was not apples to apples. There were many services, um, especially outpatient services that were not um, picked up by the private hospital, private facility, private medical center. And so we lost a lot of capacity, is what I'm trying to say. We lost a lot of expertise. There was a huge, and has been a huge change in the delivery, the care delivery model and the care delivery services. And it was done hastily without putting in place the proper infrastructure um, to ensure that we were, that um, the consumers we're getting or are getting um, comparable services or at least quality healthcare services. And so um, we've we we've learned a lot since then. Um, what, what we will do to address these myriad of things, we had a privatization of the Medicaid program as well. We now have instead of a state administered Medicaid program, we have five insurance companies, private insurance companies that how they each business model that administer the Medicaid program. So the, the system is complicated as well. It became much more complicated, less accountability. And as I said earlier, there's still a lot to be desired in terms of the overall performance of the healthcare system. And so for me, what I am most interested in right now is understanding better. How the healthcare delivery system performance is managed? How do we manage this this monster of a system that we created? <laughs> and how do we ensure that it is performing and it is delivering the quality and the outcomes that we're paying for? And um, that, I think is a is a huge challenge for our, healthcare delivery in Louisiana going forward. Um, We can talk about what's happening right now with the COVID pandemic. We can talk about what's happening on top of that with the catastrophic uh, category four. Hurricane that we just had, there will be another disaster. We know it. There will be another hurricane. What are we gonna do differently? to prepare and to really make the hard decisions and to take the politics out and get back to governing and making public policy based on sound policy and data and information. That is where I think we have to shift during and after this pandemic and this disaster.
0: I just want to remind everyone that you're listening to COVID calls, and today's guest is Alma Stewart, the founder of the Louisiana Center for Health Equity, and I'm joined by guest co-host Kim Fortune today. Alma, I just wanted to—I want to ask you uh, about your work on the um, health equity, the COVID nineteen health equity task force um, here in a second. But I just want to underline something you said earlier um, when you were talking about your memories of this time, and you talked about the impact on children. Um, because we've heard so much throughout the first part of the pandemic, and even still now, that somehow this pandemic doesn't affect children. I mean, that was kind of a standard talking point for policymakers, and I and I realize a lot of that was to try to tamp down concerns about kids going back to school in the fall of last year, uh-huh. uh, and of course now we're facing it again. But I was so moved by the way you described the many different um, the ways in which that's just wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in, in fact, I think engaging in that kind of discourse that somehow you get a free pass with kids mm-hmm. as if the only measure that matters is if they die mm-hmm. is just, I just wanted to underline that. Cause I was really, thank you for talking about that. You I know. think that's such an important aspect of this. And I wonder if that's maybe part of what you picked up on this task force or, or anything else that that you've, you've done. This is um, Governor John Bell Edwards' um, state task force on COVID-19 health equity. You've been engaged with that. Tell us a little bit about it.
1: I, I think the work has been phenomenal. Um, it is a, um, you know, a, a, a diverse um, group of stakeholders that come from many different backgrounds and perspectives. Um, within the state of Louisiana, all across the state of Louisiana, I think a lot of great effort has gone into um, studying the issues and compiling a report with recommendations um, on multiple, from multiple areas. I, I mean, there was a task force that was looking at specifically the prison population, which is another population we don't talk about as much as we should be talking about. Um, the nursing homes. You know, we 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 the the, the task force focused on on many different um, aspects of the COVID nineteen um, pandemic. Um, I did have the great fortune of serving on the public affairs and regulatory subcommittee, uh, which I think put forth some very um, very progressive um, recommendations. Um, I was pleased and proud of the recommendations that we submitted. Um, I can't say that um, those recommendations have been um, implemented yet. We are still working and advocating for um, some of those recommendations. And and some of those recommendations do go back to um, the issues that I just talked about with our young people. Um, Trauma and um, mental health is... um, very much a part of the COVID-19 pandemic. And so what we're trying to do is to, or one of the recommendations was to, or is to um, get the school systems to um, implement policies that are less punitive um, and that acknowledge and, implement trauma-informed practices, trauma-informed services, and provide appropriate screening for our young people, for students when they present with challenges in school. Rather than sending them home, let's get them help. Let's find out why they are struggling and why they're presenting with um, whatever behaviors that we're seeing show up in the schools, we know that they spend most of their waking hours during the school year at school. And so if there are problems, they are going to probably show up in the school environment. And so the, the the school personnel, the teachers are in the best position many times to um, sort of like, you know, they call us I'm a first responder, right? Because I'm a nurse. Well, in the education system, teachers are first responders. They're sometimes the first people who see a problem. And when we see a problem, we should do whatever is in our um, ability to try to respond to that um, in, a, in an appropriate manner, such as to help provide appropriate Um, intervention, an appropriate intervention. And an appropriate intervention many times for these children is not to expel them or suspend them from school. And so we are, we are working with the administration. We're advocating for, um, we're, we're, we're still uh, working to get um, that policy Implemented in the schools. Uh, We know that we receive significant federal funds, uh, CARES Act funding. We don't believe it's a funding issue. We believe it's an issue of political will and policy. And, um, you know, using again um, evidence and best practices to respond to a COVID-19 pandemic. We know that these children are struggling. We see the data. We see the evidence. I mentioned it earlier at the top of the hour. We see it. So how are we going to respond? Are we just going to infuse those dollars into an existing system that isn't addressing the real needs or are we going to really start to address the real needs of these children? And so that that's 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 what I would like to see is more of the recommendations prioritized and implemented, I think the state has done a great job on um, reporting the data on um, on uh, communications in terms of of PR um, to get information out to the public. Um, and I, we still have low numbers when it comes to um, the vaccinations, and so there's still a challenge there to get more people to. Um, to get vaccinated, but I, I think that the state has done a, a, a really good job on on, on um, getting information out to the public on communication and messaging around um, the pandemic and, and and things like that. But you know, there's there's still there's so many recommendations that came out of that that um, you know still are are sitting on on the um, on the table and that I think need to be revisited.
2: Alma, you address a question that's really at the center of my concern Um, in my own work on environmental health. I examine uh, the way schools are sites of hazards, either because of industrial facilities or near freeway siting, but also the potential of schools as public health and environmental health advocates, you know, who could maybe have an influence on the political process. What if where how do you envision the the potential role of schools as advocates uh, for their students rather than punishers of their students, but also as health actors and equ- health equity actors uh, in particular? like what if you could imagine a Louisiana ten years out with schools stepping up to play new roles, what would that look like? Do you have examples of where that's maybe happened in places that you could share?
1: There, there are um, you know schools, school um, systems, LEAs—that's what we call them here—the um, local education authorities—that are doing um, some innovative um, health um, activities that have implemented on campus um, school-based health clinics, um, school-based behavioral health services. Um, it is happening. I, I think that um, there is an opportunity to do a lot more. There are some um, pilot programs through grants um, that I'm aware of that have partnered with the health department on some behavioral health um, initiatives um, collaborating between the schools and, and um, health. Um, I think that there are pockets. Of what I call excellence in our state, and those are huge opportunities. And one of the things we're working on now, actually, is identifying some of those some of those programs and talking to some of those school systems to learn uh, what's worked, what's not working, how what um, they have implemented, how that. Uh, that um, information can be used and leveraged to expand and and to implement in other parts of the state. Ultimately, we would like to see some of that become more policy across the state, more systemic throughout the system. But I think we're at a good um, place in terms of what we have to um, learn from, the examples that we have that we can learn from. And so we're not starting from zero. Let's take those examples of best practices and let's, let's replicate them in other parts of the state. I would like to see that happening with the, the CARES Act funding. Let's expand what we know is best practices and good policy, good programs. Um, however, I just don't, I, I haven't, um, there, there there, sometimes is somewhat of a disconnect um, from the high-level policy drivers, um, and that even includes funding. I'm one of these people that believes that uh, if you want to know what, pri- what an organization or state's priorities are, look at where the money goes and how the money is spent. Look at the budget. And so, if the budget is a tool for driving um, the 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 services, the programs, um, the type of of uh, interventions that we have, then the funds, especially new funds, when we have additional resources, because I know many people say, "Well, you can't take money from over here to put it over here." Okay, well, let's look at the the, the new funds that are that are coming into the state, which which is significant now. Let's. Let's appropriate those funds to the kind of programs and services and interventions that we know work, that are best practices, that are emerging in our field of public health. Let's invest in them. Let's put those dollars there. <laughs> so that that's 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 what I believe needs needs to happen. I, I think that we as a state um, have here's another thing I need to say about the the education system that I learned over the past several years of uh, looking at and trying to affect systemic changes within how education and health um, you know interact (laughs) is that the education system here is very decentralized. We have a department of education and a board of education that governs the schools but the school systems have significant autonomy in deciding their policy and how they what they do and how they implement things what they implement and so that is very different from how things are in health in healthcare we're highly regulated <laughs> um, we're licensed. Everything is pretty much licensed. Every facility is licensed if you're going to provide care and if you're going to get paid for that care. And there there are um, you know um, requirements in terms of regulations that you have to follow that are not discretionary. there you follow them if you want to be in this business. <laughs> for example, hospitals, they have regulations and they're regulated by multiple you know ent- entities they're licensed by the state they're regulated by joint commission i mean they you know it's it's on and on and on but in 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 education there they have so much autonomy at the local levels and so it's hard it's really you almost have to deal with i think it's 68 maybe more than that local education authorities to do anything to get them to implement something So right now we are developing and working on um, putting together a pilot to um, implement the policy that we are trying to get passed in the legislature and trying to get the administration to um, support um, through the um, COVID-19 task force just to get one LEA um, to demonstrate that it can be done, that it really can be done. And so... um, Getting, but however, getting it to happen on a state level, it would take state legislation and that legislation would have to be, be very specific to get all of the state, LE, the LEAs across the state to implement the policy. So that's, that's where we are.
2: <laughs> that, that's a really brilliant analysis of The system that you need to do so that you can focus on the political determinants of health. And I'll say, as a university teacher, this is the kind of analysis I hope to help students develop the capacity to do so that they can address these root uh, causes. So, uh, your explication is just um, really powerful for that purpose. Why don't we close while continuing on this thread of the kind of strengths and assets of Louisiana? Uh, what, what, um, habits in social networks and families, um, do you have your eye on to build on? And just for example, in work on environmental justice, uh, churches in Louisiana have played powerful leadership roles. They've provided space to meet. They've, you know, been the initial community base. What are, um, what are those other assets in Louisiana that, um, you know, you want to work with and build from going forward?
1: Well, that's a a great question. And so I want to say something uh, in response just to kind of close out from the last question. I I do, Louisiana is my home. (laughs) I love this state and I love the people here. And I think that, you know, um, the people here are good people. And the culture here, it's kind of diabolical in some in some ways, um, in that you know, if if you come to Louisiana, you would probably have the best time and um, enjoy the food, the culture, and, and 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 all that Louisiana has to offer. However, if you live in this state on a day to day basis, many of the um, you know many things that um, are pervasive in this state are not conducive to the well-being of the people of the state, if that makes sense. (laughs) It's it's not always conducive to our overall well-being. And so um, I I know that there are um, wonderful people who are doing the best job that they possibly can, can do. And I say that because I came out of state government I came out of the bureaucracy. I was a public servant for many years. I understand the difficulty. I understand how hard it is to do your job and at the same time, try to look above the fray to even um, be aware of a lot of the things that I'm talking about. I get to be in the great position of being on the outside now and being able to, to see the bigger picture and many of the nuances nuances that um, challenge us here, and you know, I I don't you know I'm a very straightforward, straight heart, straight talker, but I don't. My intent is never to be critical or to um, cast. Um, blame anywhere. These are systemic problems. They're historical, they're deeply rooted, and they didn't just happen overnight. So in order for us to move past where we are, we have to build bridges. We have to build trust. We have to build relationships. And we have to work together. We have to be transparent. We have to be honest. One of the reasons I speak the way I do is because to the best of my ability, I wanna be honest. I wanna speak the truth, at least my truth, the way I see it. And there are, and I'm sure many who don't see it the way I see it, and that's okay because I'm also willing to listen. I'm open to other views and other points of views and to finding common paths forward. But what I do not feel, um, what I don't want to compromise on is the necessity of finding paths forward together. And so, you know, having these open, honest conversations Um, bringing together different stakeholders and perspectives um, is critical. It's really critical to us right now because we have to do it. We need to do it if we're going to move ourselves past where we are and start going in the right direction. So that's kind of what I want to close with. Um, The partners in terms of uh, opportunities, I think that they are endless. I think that the opportunities for us in this state are endless. And I, um, hope that as we, um, come out of this pandemic and even as we're transitioning through it, because we don't know how long that's going to be, that we take this opportunity. And that's what my organization is working on, even, even as we, as we speak, is working on, um, planning and, 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 um, developing strategic Uh, goals and activities and actions to help move us toward the LA 40 by 2030. That's where we are.
2: Well, thank you for your work and leadership and for this incredibly uh, clear uh, vision and articulation. I've really appreciated it. Thank you
0: so much. Alma Stewart, uh, guest today on COVID calls. Thank you so much for your time, particularly uh, in the middle of a hurricane. And uh, I will treasure your email that you sent back to me saying the power's back on. We can talk. So that, just the, you know what you're going through now with COVID, but also with this um, with the aftermath of this storm. Stay healthy and and thanks for all the work you're doing, Alma.
1: Thank you so much for this opportunity to get our message out.
0: Talk to you soon. I hope.
1: Thank you. Take
0: care. Just a reminder: you're listening to COVID calls and talking with Alma Stewart today, the founder of the Louisiana Center for Health Equity, and uh, I have the privilege of keeping Kim Fortune on for a few minutes uh, now to talk a little bit about what uh, what we just heard, what we just learned, talking to Alma Stewart, and anything else that's that's on your mind. Um, uh, so I. I try to take notes with with guests and and sometimes put them up on screen. And Alma Stewart's kind of person. Like at some point, I had to almost stop because everything she was saying was so powerful um, that I I'm going to have to go back and read the transcript of this. I think to to take in. But I mean, such clear framing of the health inequity problems, the historical basis of those, but then throughout um, coming back to solutions and coming back to organization as a solution. That really came through to me. Kim, what are your impressions? I think you got to unmute.
2: Sorry. Um, I think that her emphasis on the political determinants of health, as she put it, is uh, really, really important. And by that, she's She speaks of a failure of uh, politics, which she sets in opposition to governance, governance being something that's not happening when the political system is obstructed or is not accountable. And clearly seeing a lot of her work is in building that governance capacity, uh, building it within within the state, which I admire very much, but also bringing in a diverse array of stakeholders and so the way that she puts health at the center of a systemic analysis and a call for really um, uh, s- systems level change, um, I think she's the kind of providing the kind of leadership really needed um, on the ground in so everywhere today really.
0: That um, trying to draw some distinction between governance. And the politics of the moment is an important one. And particularly in Louisiana, a state where so many governmental functions, things that might be done by the public sector where you are in California um, or in Northeastern states has been privatized. I mean, she pointed out the way that Medicaid funding has been privatized into five, I guess, quasi-public um, insurance companies now. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think that puts um extra emphasis on the need for the kinds of organizations like hers that would be co- they would be holding public officials accountable but they also have to interact with these sort of private governance entities as well it becomes an incredibly complicated landscape of political actors and governmental actors
2: yeah and it it brought to mind the important question of what kind of partnerships does she need outside the state that would help um, scaffold what she's trying to do. Partners in part with universities, what kind of research do university based researchers, students, to more senior people can we do to enable um, enable the the visioning and planning that she's doing? And because part of what you hear is that there's both an incredible specificity to how Louisiana works per se. But also part of the problem is a kind of insularity that plays into the lack of accountability in the political sphere. And so the sense of how do you coordinate within the state, but also at other scales. um, I'd love to have a chance to talk to her more about that.
0: Yeah, me me too. I'm also really impressed with just her um, lack of cynicism In, in a time in which it would be very easy, I think, to dismiss. Everyone's dismissing everyone. Uh, that's there's a media culture that thrives on that. That's its own sort of genre of, of media now. But this, um, her willingness to serve on this task force in the middle of the pandemic, when she has so much other work to do, knowing as she does the political determinants of health frame that she put out there, and still putting her shoulder behind it and really advocating it for here for it here on COVID calls. I'm impressed with that. I mean, do you, do you see that as sort of the essence of organization, environmental, um, you know, advocacy organizations, the kinds of people that you work with and study? I guess it's a another way to ask it is, is how do people keep their stamina? It, it, again and again, they're shown sort of political cravenness and the ability to corrupt an organization. And yet they go back in and they try to make these um, yeah. Something like a task force in the middle of a disaster. Try to make it work. Let's make it work instead of saying, "Now nah, I've seen that, and, and I'm not sure that's going to work." I'm just always impressed by people who can get back in there and and do that again.
2: Yeah, I think it's it's a enduring debate within progressive effort: uh, who we ally with, and um, at what point are you crossing a line into kind of abetting a process that you? Um, that you know to be problematic. And so the question of how to partner with the state, the government at all levels, is an important question that we need to to constantly ask. And importantly, that question is changing because as Alma said, there is new resources available for building uh, capacity to support inclusive prosperity, certainly coming in through uh, the Justice Oriented Climate um initiative coming from the US federal government right now. Um, and so the and her eye on it is like how do we spin this well rather than allow it to continue to feed a broken system?
0: That struck me as well at multiple points in the conversation. Uh, she pointed to the fact that. Future disasters. I mean, we have to again set the stage where Alma is right now. I mean, people have had their power out, and the biggest storm since Katrina has just moved through. They we still don't really know the full aftermath of it, and and she said she's very clear. And more disasters are coming, and COVID is still ongoing. So we have a change of administration. Um, We have a CARES Act. We have an infrastructure bill. It's a moment potentially of opportunity. But she spoke about her anxieties there. And, and it's what you just said, this fear that this moment could be lost. And and I think about that a lot because we have often in the United States pointed to disasters as inflection points that we want them to be. But I feel like we've often misread the history because we so badly want his history to hinge on these disasters. But after Katrina, it was continuity. It, it, there were I mean, maybe you could say, well, $14 billion was spent on a dewatering system in New Orleans. And so how could you say, so maybe there's some, some changes, but the deeper structures that keep hazard, uh, in the forefront of, of life in Louisiana, those didn't change.
2: Or, or got worse. I mean, you've had, right. Um the I think wide and expected further direction. I think that what she stressed at the beginning about they're actually falling in health rankings, not um, you know, not rising is 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 sobering indeed. and Um, And she started with saying poverty is a key driver. And we know from what she said later that she knows that poverty is not a given. Louisiana is an extraordinarily mineral rich, industry rich state. And so the question of why is it such a poor place or why is poverty so widely and unevenly distributed in the state? And so the way that she gets at a political economic analysis through entry you know, by entering through a health analysis, uh, I think is um, a really, really important kind of analysis we need to work with at this juncture.
0: It's, it, it is worth just coming back to a question like that, I think. If you go to Louisiana and, and her description at the end is really apt, I mean, I have family ties back to Louisiana uh, going very far back, and whenever you go back there, even if you're not from there, people go out of their way to make you feel at home, at least in my experience, in a number of different ways, not just in the tourism industry. Um, mm-hmm. and, there's this, and of course, she talked about the cultural assets. And you can't go anywhere in Louisiana without seeing the evidence of mineral extraction, which means wealth. And so then you're presented with a slate of numbers that shows you the horrendous COVID impact, the air quality impacts, the 50th in health out of 50 states impacts. Um, and it's too flip to just say, well, that's just the way it is in the South or yeah, poverty is just the way of life here. That acceptance is toxic. And it just, to me, it comes back to like, which part of that do you, do you try to pick up first? She's picked up the health a quite specific part of the health part of that discussion. It's, but again, it come back to this question of stamina. I don't know how many people do you have to try to convince that that mismatch is, is the root of the problem.
2: Yeah. And I, I think it's there's a risk in in trying to draw out the challenges of Louisiana. It's so important to recognize the the particulars of Louisiana, but also so important not to isolate it. Uh, the petrochemical industry that works there is a global industry. It's not a Louisiana right. industry. Um the The logic of privatization across sectors in health and education did not originate in Louisiana. And so the question of how do you think systemically at a state level, but also at other scales, national, regional, um, global?
0: Since I have this time with you, I want to ask about California, Kim, just uh, just moving out of Louisiana for a second can you draw a distinction? What's the, we looked at Louisiana on one side, what does it look like in California right now? Are you having this fourth wave like they are in Louisiana? Uh,
2: we are, and I, w- I was just thinking of comparisons between California and Louisiana as we're preparing for a primarily California audience, but it will be open a virtual toxics tour of Louisiana. In part to introduce California students to California's uh, environmental hazards, but what I um, know that I need to emphasize is California has got its share of similar problems. There's staggering health disparities and environmental injustice in California. They can look different because it's very it's governed very differently. Um, the way disparities. Um, Kind of manifest in rural and urban settings are are different, and so the way that in many ways governance itself produces the disparities in California, um, and including it, it's affected um, you know, how COVID care for and for example, Imperial County, the southernmost Calif uh, county in California on the uh, Mexican border, is the I think had the the. The worst COVID rates in this state, at least at one point, and just stunning lack of health capacity that reminds me of the rural parishes in Louisiana that I've done research in. And so I think that there's a lot to be learned from these comparisons about, as she put it, what makes ill health, what makes health. And I think that there will be place based differences, but also a lot that we can learn, a lot that basic infrastructure that we need to um, more emphasize its basicness that is um, kind of shared across these sites. And I think we can strengthen work like ALMA's by making some of the infrastructure needed in schools and water supply and air quality more of a baseline that ex- that's expe- expected not only in a given place, but kind of across sites.
0: I didn't get a chance to ask her this, and, and you were kind of moving the conversation towards the end towards this, but I think it's a, it's a good question I always like to ask you, which is, what kind of infrastructure do you think she needs, and what role can people like us play? And when I say yeah. us, that might be people in academia or in policy circles, um, people who have the ability to convene, to do research, to publish those findings. What should our role be in light of what we heard from Alma Stewart?
2: It's a one of my favorite questions, as you know, I mean, how do we need to infrastructure knowledge production so that it can scaffold the kind of change that she's trying to make happen? And I think some of it is tactical, like the cases of um, things working that she pointed to that are so hard to scale. Um, we need to do document and analyze those and they need to be archived and curated in a way where they stay in the public imagination as possibilities. I think there's also coordinational capacity where I don't know if she is in dialogue with someone in a similar organizational role in California or Kansas or New York City. I hope so. I know in the environmental justice arena, there's beginning to be those cross linkages, um, rebuilt. They, they've really, really fallen away in recent decades at a national scale. And so just the capacity to learn from each other and get ideas about what the nature of the problem is, so to speak, but also what are the building blocks towards something different, um, I think that there there's some very basic work of that sort that we um, that we should prioritize right away.
0: I guess I also always feel I agree with that. Also, this she described a 27 year career in one domain and then shifting over to another domain. And I mean, this is a person who's built up a network, a body of knowledge, and a network of connections as we heard, an incredibly complicated political landscape Um, and documenting that and Mm -hmm. shining light on those accomplishments, which, you know, we do our best to, when we talk about environmental justice or health equity, and and there's a lot written about those things, but I still think there's not near, we've just scratched the surface of telling the stories of people like Alma Stewart. I mean, she should be a household name. She should be under consideration for the Biden administration for whatever she wants to do she's too busy to do that. But you know what I mean? Just, I think we just have some, I I worry sometimes people move past this idea of just giving her the spotlight a bit and really letting her tell her story. Incredibly powerful, I think.
2: Well, I think that you also can walk backwards from that and say, what are the capacities that she's clearly built over time analytic capacities, organizational capacity that aren't usually thought of as the outcome of educational programs. Hmm. And I think that being creative analyst of the political determinants um, of harm and ill health is, it it would change our educational system to think of that as a learning outcome. Um, You know, for students at all levels, because what you get if you prioritize that is we don't have to know now even where we want to go, but we build capacity to recognize the need for that and imagine what it could be. And her powerful point that where she doesn't want to compromise, I mean, she wants to work side by side, even with people that she has criticized, but where she doesn't want to compromise is in recognition that we need to go someplace new. Mm-hmm.
0: Um,
2: and, I, and what's powerful about where she gets there is it's empirically based. It's not, um, it's certainly framed by progressive commitments to inclusive prosperity, um, but it, it's solidly grounded in her recognition of kind of what, um, how the world works and how people's lives are lived.
0: So we better wrap up in this session of COVID calls. But before we do, I just wanted to take this uh, moment to thank you for your week of hosting of COVID mm-hmm. calls. And for people who don't know, I will um, put those links back out for that week of, of COVID calls. And they were great ones and characteristically very inclusive. Um, you survived. I hope you enjoyed it. What did you? What was the takeaway for you?
2: I really enjoyed it. I'm not nearly as good a DJ as you are, and so I missed you as a partner in these things. But it—it's really—it reminded me of my admiration for COVID calls as a project, uh, just the documentation of people's evolving sense of what's going on, what what are matters of concern, um, and and not um, and having having confidence that these kinds of conversations just the persistence with them will generate insight that we couldn't have imagined before the call happened each of the calls that i was involved in went in some direction that i didn't anticipate right Right. and that's i think the open-ended dialogue that you've um, modeled here as a mode of knowledge generation we too often forget what a powerful mode of knowledge generation it is in a world that counts number of COVID deaths and cancer deaths. And And those, those data are really important too, but the way that we can leverage qualitative assessment and insight in trying to make sense and better the world, I think is, um, we've got work to do on that front and COVID calls is, um, Walking us there
0: i'm I'm glad you said that, and I love that you know you wrote scripts, and I know you prepared for each one of those in detail with questions and and I have the same exact experience always what you just said that you doesn't matter, matter how many questions I write, something is going to emerge, often a whole new theme and and often something that emerged maybe for the guest very recently because of covid because of the many rooms that are in this this disaster, and even today um Alma's discussion of children was just really important, yeah. And uh, you know, I, I think I wasn't so prepared. I I wasn't so prepared to go down that road with her. And it, it's another. It just brings me back to that fundamental question about the health of children, um, but also her personal experience as she shared. She's a grandmother, and so it's you know moments like that. To me, um, I'm just glad that we we're having those conversations. So thanks again for doing that because uh, I rested while you. <laughs> while you did that. Uh, yeah.
2: You, uh, it's, what are you, what call are you on now? 350 or something?
0: Today is 330,
2: Well, congratulations for just incredible work. And and it needs to be recognized that it's not only um, a podcast, but it's also an archive that can be used um, for research that we can't even imagine. will come to be understood as important about this historical juncture.
0: Thanks, Kim. And of course, you know, I'm going to have you back as a guest host whenever you want to. And um, just want to remind everybody, you've been listening to COVID Calls, a special COVID Calls episode today with Alma Stewart and my guest co-host, the great Kim Fortune. And just want to remind you all, you can catch COVID Calls usually at 6 p.m. Eastern time. Today is a special day uh, please join me in just under an hour. I have a second COVID Calls episode today. My guests will be Sungun Kim and Hewan Kim, who are graduate students of the Graduate School of Science and Technology Policy at KAIST. And we'll be talking about air quality and breathing in South Korea. And we'll be talking about their new book on this topic. So please do join me in an hour for COVID Calls. Until then, stay healthy, everybody. And we'll see you next time. Thanks, Kim.